What's in a name? Well, as we've learned through Henry Hudson, there's an awful lot in a name. And often in the story behind that name, infinitely more. And as mentioned earlier, in a busy place like New York, we don't always take the time to stop and get the answers to questions like, who exactly was this Tweed or this Stuyvesant or this Hudson? Although by listening to our first five episodes, you now know one of those gents very well. Maybe even a little more than you bargained for. But sometimes, what we also see, for one reason or another, is that a name doesn't always stick. At least, an official name. In other words, certain places are known as one thing on a map, but something very different to the locals. But how does that happen? Well, sometimes it's a matter of the authority that is naming it simply doing its best to mark its territory, saying, this is ours because we named it. But that doesn't always work out so well. And if you've ever spent any time in the northeast part of the U.S., then you probably know the basic circuit of summer retreats, that smallish basket of options, each having its own very specific flavor. The Hamptons, that, that's one for sure. Fire Island is another, smaller, slower paced. The Jersey Shore. Actually, there's a lot more to it than just Snooky in the situation. But of course, they are there too, if that's your flavor. Of course, there's Newport, Cape Cod, Martha's Vineyard, or Da Vineyard. Nantucket is another one, beautiful, majestic, also pretty crowded and pretty expensive. On the mainland coast, there's also places like Guilford, Old Saybrook, Old Lyme, Watch Hill, and... Now our blood is getting a little bluer. Of course, there's also more tucked away places like Charlestown Beach, Fisher's Island, Shelter Island, the North Fork, and a handful of others. But then, if you look at a map of the Northeast, and you go to that very eastern section of Long Island, and go to the Southern Fork, where the eastern extremity is itself another beautiful place named for the indigenous band of Algonquin natives who once inhabited it, Montauk which sort of points out into the Atlantic like a swollen finger, pretty much east-northeast. And if you got into a boat, like my friend Joe Rena's fishing boat, or into a 17th century Dutch yacht, and traveled in the direction that that swollen finger is pointing to, after about five leagues or so, you would arrive at a triangular-shaped island which you couldn't miss for its stunning beauty. A timeless green oasis which remains fragrant and fertile and remarkably unspoiled even after four centuries. In fact, it's much like Manhattan was when Henry Hudson happened upon it back in 1609. And the thing is that this solitary tear-shaped island, sometimes referred to as the Bermuda of the North, about seven miles tall and about three miles wide, also just happens to be one of the more serene and beautiful places I myself have ever been. Not just in the Northeast, but anywhere. So, the name that the authority gave it, the one on the map, is New Shoreham. (laughs) But don't worry if you've never heard of that, because 
That's the stale, milk-toasty stamp that the English put on it after their settlers' agreement in the commonly cited celebratory year of 1661. But the hard truth is, nobody's ever actually called it that. Because for all the pomp and circumstance about this year of 1661, when the list of original English settlers with names like Torment Rose and Trunstam Dodge began laying down their roots on this curiously enticing haven, just as in Manhattan, the actual discovery of this place happened a long time before the English ever got their hands on it. And the really, really cool thing about this place, which most people don't know, is that its discovery would actually be the final component of a three-part formula of trade that would eventually germinate into the financial center of the universe. What? (laughs) Yes. The one off of which the rest of the world would eventually revolve. And the fact is that the true and lasting name of this idyllic refuge was set half a century before any Englishman ever yawned out the boring, recycled name of New Shoreham. Because as anyone who's ever been here, sailed through here, or dropped a fishing line anywhere near here knows full well, the real and eternal name of this little triangular gem of the Atlantic will always be Block Island. And yes, its discovery, half a century before 1661, would change the flow of international commerce forever. This is the podcast Island, the story of how this culture, this world, this island, the place we now know as New York, came to be. My name is Chance Kelly, and I look forward to you saying, wow, history is cool. Episode 6, Supercargo, 1611. Adrian Bloch. The rippled wake of Henry Hudson left the indigenous population in this new world seething, and a tight-knit group of minority businessmen back in Amsterdam posturing for profit over the natural resources that this inscrutable Englishman had uncovered from this strange and untamed island. The timber and crops were one thing, but the thick, shiny, castor-gras firs were yet another. And with all the interconnections of this chatty Amsterdam business community, the Van Twainheisen group was no doubt aware of the frustrations that the VOC had experienced with their 1609 hire. These sharp, focused Lutherans were not going to make the same mistake. And so, when Henry Hudson was hired yet again, only weeks after returning the Half Moon to Europe to search for this elusive Northern Passage, 
Lambert Van Twainhuysen had absolutely no interest in following the escapades of this shifty and mercurial Englishman. Because these Lutherans, they did their homework. And they weren't going to hire just anybody to sail back across to the unknown side of the planet to establish this new system of trade. Oh no. This was a bit bigger than that. Van Twainhuysen's style was to simply find the absolute best man for the job, wherever he was. And so, on April 17, 1610, as Henry Hudson pushed off from the London docks on his fourth attempt at finding this elusive shortcut to Asia, it was with a thoroughbred English crew of 22 that included Robert Jewett and 13-year-old John Hudson. And this ship was fittingly called the Discovery, and Lambert Van Twainhuysen and his group of poker-faced investors could not have cared less. Because the Van Twainhuysen company was singularly focused on trade, and that focus led them to an entirely different kind of seaman, one with whom they shared a particular and very important allegiance. An Amsterdam native whose prowess in international navigation and privateering had been successful enough to buy him a fine home within the city and make him a highly respected citizen. And seeing that this normally very busy navigator had only recently returned from an expedition, Van Twainhuysen was savvy enough to know that the time to strike was now for this incomparable candidate. A trustworthy skipper, a skilled leader of man, and a competent navigator with experience in Europe and Asia, including contact with the local populations. And that was key. Van Twainhuysen and his group knew that this new recruit would be required to establish a new trade system with the indigenous natives in a far-off land and that this would require a very unique form of tact and ability. The key attribute that set this new candidate so far apart from his English predecessor. Consider this sensible, reliable, level-headed man, so quite different from Henry Hudson, who was driven by obsessions. Because you are being given one singular focus in your job detail. And that focus is trade. And these Lutherans knew that across all of Europe and the world, for that matter, in 1611, that there was one man singularly and appropriately qualified to fill this position. And he just happened to live right down the street from them in Amsterdam. And that was Adrian Block. That's Adrian Block. Uh, Block, it's a very interesting situation. As I said, they had petered out in, in Europe and they were they were just depending on the Russians uh, mostly for uh, uh, their source of, uh, of furs. And you generally never really want to be relying on the Russians for anything. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Especially when they cost 10 times what they do when yeah. you pick them up over in North America. Yeah, especially if they have you compromised in some way. Right, and the Russians aren't taking beads or spoons in exchange for the furs. They want gold and silver and a lot yeah, more. Yeah, they want, they want hard goods, right. yeah. yeah. I mean, this was a gold rush. They discovered gold. They said, do you see what Hudson brought back? And Hudson goes off continuing to look for this northern passage. And the Dutch businessmen said, no way, man, we're, we're going back to Manhattan. We're going to go back and get as many of these furs and not, not just get 
the furs. We're going to go establish trade alliances. Yes. It's important to recognize the character that Block was. He must have been a shrewd cat, a responsible captain, an intelligent guy. He had to have a cool head, too, because there was a lot of tumult and a lot of unrest. In order to appreciate Block, you have to know what he had done up to this point. He had been involved in the Mediterranean to Venice, and he went as far as the Far East Mm -hmm. to Indonesia. He was a very experienced seaman. And when he reaches New Netherland, he's... He's an an elder statesman of, of the exploration world, yeah. Really. And he knows his stuff. He knows how to deal with natives. He has dealt with them in the Far East and he knows how to negotiate. He's an experienced supercargo. The supercargo aboard the ship, he's the one who's in control of the merchandise, the stuff that's going to be traded. He's the one who makes the deals and he knew how to do it. Charles Effenepauzer will be right back after the break. Yes, he did. Trade particularly supply side, this was Block's specialty, along with being fiercely loyal and reliable to his employers. A man so highly regarded, trusted, and revered that he had proven himself above and beyond all others. A man whom merchant adventurers had entrusted to tame the Arctic and the whales who moved at will through it. And as Block and his Lutheran employers queue up the cultivation of the greatest commercial center mankind would ever know, Henry Hudson has by now thoroughly and irreparably exhausted his English crew's patience and allegiance. And in the uncharted northwest corner of the planet, by June 21st of 1611, food aboard Hudson's discovery had dwindled to less than two weeks' worth of rations at best irreversibly decaying the ship's morale. And as his embittered crew fully wraps their beleaguered minds around this grim reality, the inimitable Hudson inexplicably begins discussing a second winter in this northwest desolation, his seemingly endless search for this elusive passage. And it was in full view of this perplexing posture that his crew's stamina collapsed and the line had been drawn. They would no longer tolerate the bottomless obsession of their captain. Now, was this English discovery crew somehow less pliable than even the rough-hewn Dutch sailors on the Half Moon? Well, consider that the sea beggars aboard the Half Moon had tired of Hudson and threatened mutiny after only a few months at sea, whereas these Englishmen had been under his command now for over 14 months. And with Hudson actively planning for yet another year of these unthinkable circumstances, the survival instincts of these English sailors finally begins to supersede Hudson's ambition. As chronicled by Abacook Prickett, an unusually empathetic crewman aboard the Discovery. During the night of Saturday the 21st of June, while still trapped in ice, Wilson of Boston and Henry Green came to me while I was laying lame in my cabin and told me that they and the rest of their associates would change the crew and churn the master and all the sick men into the shallop, letting them shift for themselves. There was only 14 days of food left for all the men, and a meager ration at that. Well, the master stayed here, not caring to go one way or another. For three days, they had not eaten anything and were therefore resolute to either mend or end. But once begun... They would go through with it or die. 
I told them I couldn't believe what I was hearing, considering that they were married men with wives and children, and that for their sakes they should not do such an evil thing in the sight of God. Furthermore, why should they want to banish themselves from their native country? Henry Green told me to hold my peace, that he knew the worst. I'd rather be hanged at home than starved abroad. And in the dawn's early light, amidst the desolation of the icy waters of the uncharted northwest corner of the planet, things started sliding downhill quickly. The master came out of his cabin while Wilson bound his arms behind him. What is the meaning of this? They told him he would know when he was in the shallow. The master called to the carpenter and told him he was bound, but I heard no reply. Then the shallop was brought up to the ship's side and the poor, sick, and lame men were made to get out of their cabins and into the shallop. I came out of my cabin as best I could to speak to the master at the hatchway when he called me. On my knees, I begged them, for the love of God, to remember themselves and to do unto others as they would have done unto them. They told me to take care and get back in my cabin, not allowing the master to speak with me. But when I returned to my cabin, he called to me. Frickers, beware! Jewett will overthrow you all! Wait. Robert Jewett? Hudson's trusted ancient man of the sea, Jewett? Well, familiarity breeds contempt. These words penned by their countryman Geoffrey Chaucer two centuries earlier could not have been more true than with Henry Hudson and his ancient man of the sea, Robert Jewett. The carpenter asked them if they knew they'd be hanged when they got home. As for himself, he would not stay with the ship. They told him to go then. I'll go, he said, if I may have my chest with me and all that's in it. They said he could and shortly put it into the shallop. Then he came down to me to say goodbye, and that's when he said to me, Prickett, there is not a single man among these mutineers who has the ability to bring this ship home. If you arrive at Cape Diggs before us, leave some token near where the fowls breed that we will know you had been there, and we will do the same for you. Goodbye, Prickett. God be with you, Philip. And with that, we parted. And so, after binding Hudson's arms behind his back, Jewett and the other twelve mutineers forced him into the shallop, along with his carpenter Philip Stacy, the quartermaster, and six others, most of them sick or dying, thereby vastly reducing the mouths that would be vying for the meager rations remaining. And the nine souls loaded into the tiny vessel in the icy waters that morning were named Arnold Ludlow, Cedric Fanner, Carpenter Philip Stacy, Thomas Woodhouse, a student of mathematics, Adam Moore, Quartermaster John King, Michael Butte, Captain Henry Hudson, and his 13-year-old son, John. If you arrive at Cape Diggs before us, leave some token near where the fowls breed that we will know you had been there, and we will do the same for you. Carpenter Philip Stacy's very last words to his best friend, Abacuc Prickett, before being cast off 
to shift for themselves into the Arctic seas in a simple rowboat. Now, Cape Diggs, that's the northwestern tip of what we call Quebec today. And Cape Diggs had been one of, if not the last reliable landfall on this voyage. They had all been there as one unit previously. They all knew this place and thought of it as a safe waypoint where they could obtain food and fresh water. Now, the Diggs Islands are a nesting place for seabirds, and that provided a good source of meats for, for ship's crews. It was also easily recognizable, so it was a good point for navigation. And with six men laying about the tiny craft, each closer to death than the next, Hudson, stoic and subdued, called out commands to his remaining two-man crew, Carpenter Philip Stacy, and his son, John Hudson. Mind the tiller, son. Stacy, mark the sun and hoist the sail. And in between his navigational duties, Stacy would glance back at the discovery, gradually disappearing with distance along with his best friend Prickett, watching in agony from its deck. John, keep the coast in sight to our starboard. And as Hudson continued his directions, less than a half hour passed before Stacy could no longer see his friend, nor the ship that had just abandoned them. Set us northwest by north, and hold that course. But all adversity aside, Henry Hudson could find his way to Cape Diggs with his eyes closed. Just keep following the coast. It'll lead us to Cape Diggs. And he would waste no time. Hugging the coast and creeping northward, they had a lot of distance to cover. Straight on, son. You must stay awake. And so, ever on point whenever dealing with known and established routes and currents... Hudson would have beelined directly to the most viable landfall he knew, which was Cape Diggs. While there is no surviving written historical record of Hudson beyond this point, it is certain that Cape Diggs would have been his singular intention, and he would have used every ounce of ability and effort to make it there, in hopes of keeping himself and his son alive. But the dark truth about Cape Diggs was not all that unlike the dark truth of Henry Hudson. Because what lurked beneath the surface often turned deadly. And in spite of the breathtaking landscape of cliffs and forests, the idyllic appearance of this place was more than a bit deceptive. In 1606, an expedition led by an Englishman, John Knight, stopped off there looking for a place to overwinter. Knight went ashore in the sloop and three others went inland. With three others he went inland, over a hill, never to be seen again. The two crew members who had stayed with the sloop went back to the ship, which was attacked by natives subsequently. And it could have, in fact been very much to Hudson's misfortune that he was a vastly more competent navigator than anyone remaining on the discovery. Because if he did make it to Cape Diggs, which I believe he did, then given his navigational knowledge, he would have actually made it there before the mutineers did. Because after they left Hudson and his son for dead, Robert Jewett and his vastly abbreviated and underqualified crew of 12 proved to be as inept as Carpenter Philip Stacy had predicted. You see, after setting the shallop adrift in the icy desolation of the northwest corner of the globe, 
the modified Discovery crew soon discovered that they were not, in fact, quite as up to the task as they had anticipated. And they proceeded to get themselves so hopelessly lost that they essentially sailed in circles for the next five weeks. And only once true starvation was staring them in the face did the mutineers make their way to Cape Diggs, where they experienced a brutal awakening. Likely the same awakening that Hudson and his beleaguered shallop crew had met not too long before. July 28th, we went to Cape Diggs for birds, heading directly to the place where they breed. As we drew close, seven boats came about the eastern point. The savages came to our men, and by signs grew familiar with one another, so that our men took one of theirs into our boat, and they took one of ours into their boat. The savages put on a great display of joy, dancing and leaping and stroking their breast. They offered various things to our men, but they only took some walrus teeth, for which in return they gave a knife and two glass buttons. Our men returned aboard ship, rejoicing that by chance they had met the most simple and kind people in the world. Henry Green, more than the others, was so confident of their good nature that he felt that there was no need whatsoever to stand guard. God had blinded him so that when he expected a great deal from these people, he received more than he had looked for. By ignoring the possibility of evil, he was suddenly made a good example of for all men. Because I was lame, I was to go in the boat, carrying with me an assortment of things I had in the cabin. When we approached the shore, the people in the hills were dancing and leaping. Everyone went ashore with something in his hand to barter with. One of the savages came over to get into the bow of our boat to show me a bottle. I made signs for him to get out, but he pretended he had not understood me. Whereupon I stood up and pointed him ashore. In the meantime, another had crept around behind. I suddenly saw the leg and foot of a man near me. I looked up and saw the savage with a knife in his hand striking over my head at my breast. Whereupon, in raising my right arm to protect myself, he wounded my arm and struck me in the body. He struck a second blow, which I met with my left hand. I got hold of the string of the knife and wound it about my left hand while he, with both hands, was striving to make an end of what he'd begun. I found he had a weak grip, and with God's help, got hold of the sleeve of his left arm, and was able to pull him away from me. I had forgotten about my dagger at my side, but then when looking down I saw it, and therewith struck him in the body and throat. While I was being assaulted in the boat, our men on shore were being set upon. John Thomas and William Wilson had their bowels cut, and Michael Pierce and Henry Green, being mortally wounded, came tumbling into the boat together. Henry Green was thrown out of the boat and into the sea. Michael Pierce lived for two days longer. Then he died. Those who have heard the tragic end of Henry Green, who they called Captain, and his mates, these four being the only strong men on the ship. And so, whether this brutal attack also defines the fate that Henry Hudson and his beleaguered shallop crew met a few days earlier, we can only guess. Now hold that thought, because we'll be right back. But regardless, 
What is glaringly clear is that Henry Hudson never made it out of this area, this area of this great body of water, the body of water that we call Hudson's Bay today. And so, with the deaths of these four Englishmen, the only capable ones remaining aboard, the discovery was left with nine souls, eight of them sick, badly wounded, or dying. And of course, the ancient, cynical, and duplicitous Robert Jewett. And with the increasingly incompetent Jewett in command, the discovery continued to grope its way, more or less, eastward. There is no doubt that our course was made much longer than need be through bad steering, for our men became so weak they could not stand at the helm, but had to sit. And then finally, this karmic intervention comes full circle. When they had nearly made it back across the Atlantic, then Robert Jewett died miserably for mere want, and all the men were in despair, saying we had already passed Ireland. They didn't care which end of the ship went forward. Some would just sit, watching the foresail or mainsail break free, the sheets either flying or broken, and not bother to do anything about it or even call for help. And by the ultimate grace of God, the ship would eventually land in Ireland, and the eight remaining crewmen, each one closer to death than the next, would nevertheless live to defend their case and tell their version of this sordid tale. And over the course of the next six years, hearings would be conducted. Co-pilot Robert Bylett, who had shared navigational duties with Jewett and was left holding the wheel upon Jewett's departure, had already been pardoned. After all, it was he who technically returned the ship and its remaining eight men to England. Eventually, four of the other survivors were arraigned, Abacook Prickett, Edward Wilson, Francis Clements, and Bennett Matthew. But as they all unilaterally testified that it was in fact the four who were killed at Cape Diggs who were wholly responsible for this mutiny, charges against each of them were ultimately dropped. And so, aptly shrouded in mystery and intrigue, thereby ends the incredible tale of the enigmatic Henry Hudson, a man whose obsessive ambition would not only change the world forever, but would seal the tragedy of his own ultimate fate as well. But wait a minute. I thought we were talking about Adrian Block. Ah, yes. So, a month before the mutiny aboard Hudson's Discovery, the Van Twain Heisen Company provided Block with several components that would enable him to launch this momentous endeavor properly. Firstly, they gave him a ship called the St. Peter. Secondly, they gave him an experienced skipper by the name of Cornelis Riser to drive that ship. Block's ability to pilot a vessel aside, that was not what these Lutherans had hired him for. And to further facilitate his success, they even gave him a key assistant. After all, Block was the superstar supercargo, 
And as Dr. Gehring explained earlier, the supercargo aboard a ship is in charge of the merchandise. He's the one who makes the deals. And if Block was the first most qualified man for this job, then Hendrik Christensen was easily the second. All Christensen gave up to Block was about a dozen years in age, but with that came a rawness, uh, an unrefined temperament that lacked the um, diplomatic tact that Block so magnificently excelled at. Why don't we mention who Christensen was to Block? He was a younger skipper who was a little more physically aggressive and assertive. He had a different temperament. It was a little more fiery than Block. Yeah, he wasn't the same as Block. Well, he was sort of the hammer. When the trouble went down and they really needed someone to step up and go chin to chin with somebody, they made a good tag team. And so a month before Hudson and his son were sent floating off to their deaths, Block and Christensen set off to develop a trade system that would change the way money moves across the planet forevermore. And after an effortless voyage across the North Atlantic, Block immediately begins surveying the coast of this new world in and around 40 degrees latitude. But Block wasn't just looking for furs. He was looking for the keys to the alliances that accessed and supplied these furs and studying the system of trade that these indigenous natives operated under. On the first voyage of Block, he was using some directionals that he had seen in uh, Hudson's Mm -hmm. journal. He had clearly seen Hudson's journal, I'm sure. He hit uh, Cape Cod and came down the coast and was looking in the various inlets, the Mystic River, Connecticut River, the Housatonic River. And although trade was Block's specialty, in his extensive survey of these people and their methods, he would actually discover many, many things about this new world. Magnificent things, physical, geographical, and spiritual. Yes, while Henry Hudson was the one singularly obsessed with discovery in the process of investigation of this place, the discoveries of Adrian Block would ultimately dwarf the true impact of Hudson. And among those discoveries is something we know as the East River, which he followed northward to where the shoals and the erratic currents told him that this must lead to a much larger, stronger body of water. And he continued to explore, whereby he sailed to the eastern end of this aforementioned land and to that very swollen finger pointing east-northeast. And it was then that Block told his men that this isn't part of the mainland at all, but rather yet another island, albeit a much larger and much longer one. And from that moment on, this would be known as Long Island. And it was from there that he followed the direction of that swollen finger, pointing him east-northeast, and after sailing those five leagues into the Atlantic until he finally came upon that very triangular-shaped island. And the beauty of that island spoke to him in a way that it speaks to us to this day. And he was shrewd and experienced enough to know that this would be a very, very special place. And this shall be Block's Island.
he declared. And so it was. And with that, Blocks Island would thereby become his northernmost operational base in this remarkable developing system. And in so deftly implementing his trademark brand of diplomacy, Blocks swiftly started to change the culture. His command and his messages were clear. That these men from far, far away, who had also come in great, intimidating floating houses, do not come to plunder, but rather to align and trade. And suddenly, the interaction between these two civilizations starts to take on a different hue than it ever had before. Because Adrian Block understood that these weren't really savages, but that they were people. And he was not a man coming to conquer, but rather to cultivate and to become a part of the life of this place and the way it works. And of all the remarkable discoveries that Adrian Block made, the most remarkable is neither a waterway nor a place, but rather something that can fit in one's hand. What is it? Gold? Well, truth be told, it was even more valuable than that. And we can't wait to tell you all about it in our very next episode. Dr. Charles T. Gehring and his New Netherland Institute in Albany have been instrumental not just in shepherding this project along, but in the cultivation of the entire study of this lost colony of New Netherland. Charlie, mein vriend, verdankt, meneer. Verdankt. Island is an original production, researched, written, and produced by Chance Kelly and Dr. Yap Jacobs. Research associate, James Mallon, for Cavalry Audio and iHeartRadio. And I am your host, Chance Kelly, thanking you for boarding our voyage of discovery en route to saying, wow, history is cool. We'll see you next time. To our growing island audience, Vedant, thank you. You guys are cool. We want to let you know about our companion podcast, Island Voices, because there are so many cool, incredible people here with us today. We don't want to just have to talk about people who were here 400 years ago. Island Voices is available both on YouTube and wherever you listen to Island. The YouTube channel is Island Voices Podcast. Island Voices Podcast on YouTube and wherever you listen to Island. Climb aboard. History is cool.